And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Lori Lightfoot became mayor of Chicago one year ago this week. Her tenure began with a acrimonious teacher strike, and it's ended with an epic pandemic. I sat down with her last week to talk about this baptism of fire, where she thinks the virus is going, and how she plans to open up her city, plus her own remarkable story, her journey from a small town in Ohio, the granddaughter of a sharecropper, to become a prosecutor, and ultimately a big city mayor. And we talked about her status as America's first gay woman of color to lead a major American city. And here's that conversation. Mayor, how are you? I'm doing well, and you? Good, good to see you. Uh, So next week, May 20th, one year in office, hell of a baptism you've had here. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you couldn't have imagined when you took that oath of office in uh, Millennium Park a year ago that this is how you'd be marking your your first anniversary in office. How are you personally holding up? What is the emotional toll associated with having to lead a city through this kind of catastrophe? Well, I mean, as you might imagine, it ebbs and it flows. Um, My personality is one where I don't get too high and I don't get too low. Um, But certainly, you know, there are times when I feel like I've reached maximum capacity. And so I try to take some time for myself every day. Usually it's early in the morning. Um, I'm an early riser, so I just kind of uh, take some time to kind of slowly um, move into the day, um, kind of set myself uh, emotionally. And then I, I, I definitely do it um, every night before I, I go to bed. Sometimes I'm so tired I don't need to. Um, I just fall asleep. But, you know, there's, a, there's an expression uh, in the, the, the church that I grew up in about laying your burdens down. So what I try to do every night is just kind of let the, let the burdens of the day to the side because they're going to be there the next day. I don't need to wrestle with them all night long. Um, you know, easier said than done, of course. But yeah, that's a great quality. I need to take some lessons from you on that. I've never quite mastered that, but that is it's important. How's your family doing? You and your wife, Amy, have a, a 12-year-old, uh, Vivian. 12-year-olds uh, are not necessarily all that keen on being penned up inside. How, how's she doing? She's, she's doing fine. You know, she starts her day off um, every morning with a Zoom conference call from uh, her teacher and with her classmates. So when I'm running out the door in the morning, she's engaged in whatever the day's events are. Um, and then I come home at night and she and her, she has discovered Fortnite. So that's like the daily obsession uh, between her and, uh, and varying groups of, of friends. But, you know, it's hard. I mean, this would be a time where she'd be out um, running track. She's an athletic uh, kid. She missed uh, a lot of her basketball season because she had a broken leg. And so was very looking forward to track. And then COVID hit. So um, we tried to kind of get that um, as much exercise as we can. We're fortunate enough to have a yard. So we, we do that. But it's not the same. And it's not the same of, you know, being with your classmates every day and that kind of intimacy uh, that close proximity um, right. builds. But th- these are kids that have grown up in the digital age with all these uh, devices. So it's probably a little bit different than when you and I were growing up. 
Speaking of the digital age, you've become quite the sensation online here. You're a you're a viral sensation. You've been doing, uh, you know, you've done all these videos about how to occupy yourself at home. You you've done, uh, I guess, parody of singing. You're baking. Uh, you're, you've done a lot of uh, some some crazy things that have really caught on uh, with people. How uh, how have you eased into the role of a viral star? Well, you know, I. Um... I don't pay a lot of attention personally uh, to social media, but I've got a great uh, creative team. And when the memes started kind of popping up and having me all over Chicago, you know, we wanted to kind of bring home this message of uh, staying home to save lives. Um, we've done it in um, a parody of that, a takeoff around the census. So, you know, look, it's, we're trying to meet people where they are. And this, yeah. these memes caught fire. They kind of originated organically. Um, and so we, we rode the wave that somebody else really started. Now, does, does Vivian catch you on TikTok in those places? So here's Viv- Vivian's reaction. She's obsessed with TikTok. And she's been yeah. trying to get Amy and I to do a TikTok with her. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so when I came home that night and said, by the way, I just did my first TikTok. Of course, her reaction was, I can't believe you did it with somebody else and you didn't do it with me. So... <laughs> Such is such is the life of a, a twelve-year-old. Yes, I remember that. Uh, I remember that period. Listen, you you know, I was a city hall reporter when Harold Washington got elected mayor of Chicago. You are the second elected African American mayor of Chicago. One of the striking things about this pandemic is just how brutal it has been on communities of color. Those fault lines that you talked about during your campaign that you've talked about since they've been exposed in just a, a really tragic way. Uh, uh, 75% of the cases uh, in Chicago reported cases have been in the black and, and, and uh, Hispanic communities. Deaths, half the deaths in Chicago uh, among the African-American community, which is only 30% of the population. How do you process that? And what do we do about it? How do we begin to deal with the things that led up to this kind of tragedy? Well, it's, it's an enormous um, challenge. And for me personally, processing those realities, it's been hard. Um, when I first heard the, the data around um, African-American, um, the impact in the Afri- African-American community, I, I, I immediately went to thinking about my mother now, she doesn't live here, but she's 91 years old and has underlying conditions. I'm the, the youngest of, of four, and my siblings are old, old enough that they fit into the demographic of over 60, and um, several have uh, underlying conditions. So it's hard not to feel that personally. But what I also knew is it was really important for us not to just drop this information on people, but as you said, to really um, come up with some concrete ways in which we as a city and then embracing our community uh, partners could really respond to this because there is a need. I mean, it's not a secret that there are healthcare disparities in our city. It's not a secret that way too many people live in poverty um, and that, that um, black and brown communities are, have a much higher rate of these underlying conditions that we now know are the death knell for COVID. You know, 93% or higher than that of the people who have died had underlying medical conditions like diabetes, heart disease, upper respiratory um, disease. So that is 
um, a haunting statistic. And I think the way that I process it um, is to feel like we are doing something to address it, that we're empowering people by giving them information, that we're connecting them up to um, healthcare systems, whether it's a family doctor or a federally qualified health um, center, that we are being as responsive to and close to the ground in these neighborhoods that are so dramatically affected and being empathetic and making sure that we're doing everything we can to flood those areas with resources. You know what worries me is that uh, when when this goes, when this lifts, whenever that is, and God knows we all hope that it's sooner rather than later, that those same conditions will exist that made these communities vulnerable. You've talked a lot about and you've laid out ambitious visions and plans for trying to eradicate poverty uh, in the city and getting to into these neighborhoods uh, that are most vulnerable right now. It's also true that this virus is also eating away at cities' revenues, creating extraordinary budget concerns for you. And you already had a situation where you have pension obligations that are growing that you're now responsible to deal with. The history of this is that when these things happen, the first communities that suffer are the communities that always suffer, the poor, the vulnerable. How do you launch a war on poverty uh, when you are in such a financial bind? I I think we have no choice. Um, I gave a speech last December to uh, the economic club, and then I spoke with them um, yesterday. Yes. And at the time in December, I said that we can't be a great global city unless we focus on inclusive growth, that we see the city as being something larger and bigger than the central business district. I repeated that message yesterday. Um, and while, yes, uh, these problems are tough, they're daunting, they were daunting before COVID, they're even more daunting now. But the thing that we've been doing all along, and I've really um, pushed my staff, is to not build temporary staff scaffolding. We don't want to put a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. We're not going to solve the problem in its entirely in the, you know, the months and the arc of this virus, but we've got to accelerate the plans that we previously had and start to address these long-standing problems now. And that's precisely what we've done. And then thinking about the, the budget, and it's, yeah, it's, it, the impact of this is significant. There's no question about it. I am grateful for the money that we've gotten from uh, the federal government, and, and I've got to give credit to uh, the Democrats in the House because uh, we would have gotten a lot less but, but for the leadership of the Speaker and others um, to insist upon direct aid to cities like Chicago. I'm hopeful that there will be more because the CARES Act money that we received already is it's constrained. We can only use that for COVID responses. And believe me, we're going to use it because um, we're going to need it. Um, but we need more support. But we, it, we have to continue to speak our values, even in these tough economic times. If we shed and move away from those communities that are most in need right now, we're giving up on a huge swaths of Chicago. We're saying that Chicago is not going to be 2.7 million. It's barely going to be 2 million because people will leave. Right. And most of the people who are leaving are uh, uh, people of color, poor people. Chicago's really one of the only world-class cities where you see population 
declining, and that's where the decline is happening. That's exactly right. And if we give up and say we can't afford to do the kind of investments that we can't afford to have inclusive economic growth, we're giving up on a vision of Chicago that I just think is critically important to define who we are now and in the future. I, I, I totally get that. I just don't know where the money comes from. Some of it may be from the voluntary contributions of those people you were talking to yesterday at the economic club. And the question is, how much are they willing to put their money where, where your mouth is and try and uh, deal with some of these problems? Because it seems impossible that you can get the money you need uh, simply from taxpayers. Property taxes are high already. Yeah, there's no, there's no question. I mean, we never envisioned that we were going to have a the city of Chicago go it alone strategy. We have to have partnership, both partnerships and helping us um, think about what the policy prescription should be, but of course, uh, partnerships in terms of uh, the money and the revenue. And we've been very fortunate already when we announced, for example, our Invest Southwest program, which is investing in exactly these same neighborhoods. Right. Uh, we put up um, money from the city, but we were joined by uh, BMO Harris Bank that put up uh, $20 million. And then we got another 10 from Starbucks and on and on. We can't do these things and move the needle in a meaningful way without partnerships of the philanthropy community, but also the business community. I've always thought that to deal with the massive problems that go into the situation that these communities are in would require a massive response from the philanthropic community, the corporate community. Government simply doesn't have the resources uh, to do everything that's necessary. Listen, in addition to making people laugh, uh, you've also scared the hell out of people. And you've been out on the street at times when there were uh, people who were defying the stay-at-home order, including par young people partying. And you've been very blunt about your feelings about that. Now we're, we, we're, we're reaching something of a breaking point with some people who've been inside for a long time. It was a predictable that, you know, as time went on, people would be impatient, a lot of people out of work. A lot of small businesses, I know you've spoken to that, are on the, at the breaking point. And yet we're not nearly done. The virus is still out there. Uh, there's no vaccine yet. So are you worried about that? Are you worried about just more and more defiance, more and more resistance, lack of political will to, uh, to do what's necessary? And, and then finding us, as Dr. Bright who testified before Congress today warned, finding us back in a situation that is as bad or worse a few months from now. So, I mean, those are all of the things that we um, worry about and talk about on a daily basis and really multiple times a day. Look, we as humans, and I think certainly as Americans, um, take our physical liberty very seriously. And we like to, to gather in groups. And our city is really built around um, having fun, recreational, and entertainment um, options. That's one of the things that makes Chicago special. And as the weather gets warm, and while we didn't have the terrible winter that um, we've had in, in many years, there's, there's an, your body and I think your mind has an expectation that when the days get longer, when the sun is shining, it's time to be outside. It's time to, to reconvene with people that you may not have seen during the, the winter months. So we have to manage that and deal with that reality. And so I've been le reading a lot, as has our Department of Public Health, about how we can safely convene, particularly outside. And I think there's opportunities for us to 
not move away from the diligence about social distancing. That's going to be with us, I think, for the foreseeable future. But I do think that there's a way in which we can gather um, outside safely with limitations, certainly masks, certainly hand sanitizers, smaller groups, but listen to music, um, uh, see a play, um, you know, all the kind of things that we would ordinarily do inside, some of what we do outside. I think there are ways, given the great venues that we have, to bring those experiences um, outside. I do think that that is possible. The president has been sort of encouraging that uh, spirit of resistance lately. I know you've had an interesting relationship. He called you when you were elected. You had a nice conversation. I think Ivanka Trump called you uh, and you met with her. It's been a little less friendly at times since then. But what do you, how would you weigh what he's doing right now and his insistence that uh, things open up. And it seems in contravention of some of the advice he's getting from his own public health people. But look, I mean, I really don't spend a lot of time thinking about Donald Trump. He would be disappointed to hear you say that. But... I just don't. Um, because I don't really think that um, in this time, in the daily press briefings, that he's offered things that are really helpful and constructive for me as a leader or really for people, um, residents of Chicago. And in, and in many instances, and there's been a lot of reporting on it, of course, he said things that are just downright um, dangerous um, yeah. and dumb. So I don't spend a lot of time kind of trying to unravel the psyche of Donald Trump on a daily <laughs> basis. I just, I just Is he don't. making it harder, though, for you and other mayors and governors? There's no doubt. There's no doubt that he's making it harder. But he's making it harder mostly because the federal response has been so halting. And it's been that way really from uh, the very beginning of this pandemic. It was too slow. There wasn't a plan. They weren't bringing us into a lot of the early things that were necessary um, that they were dictating that had to be operationalized um, at the local level, particularly around um, airports and screening and a lot of that. We're on the ground here. We have to take responsibility for that. And they weren't talking um, to us, and it was very clear that they didn't have a plan. More recently, um, and, and we've been well positioned with things like PPEs and vents because our uh, uh, public health department really prepares our year long. But the one thing that we absolutely need to have some uniformity on is testing. We need the physical test kits to be able to make sure that we can open safely. And the fact that literally it's every man or woman for themselves is a terrible indictment of the federal response, but also it makes it really difficult for us to cogently be able to tell our residents that they're safe because we're scrambling literally every single day following every lead to have a small handful of tests that we can put into a community center or a federally qualified health center or pushing our, um, our labs and our hospitals to ramp up their taste testing capabilities. But it's this scramble and agita that's been developed because of the void left by the federal government. Well, you also told people on Monday, Mayor, that everybody who wants a test can get one. Well, he said that before, and we know that's not true. It's just simply not true. Now, everybody who's named Donald Trump that wants a test can get one, but that's not true for you or me. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. 
You talked about people seeing a play, maybe hearing some music outdoors. One of the things that you did that got quite a bit of attention, you did it early, was you shut down the lakefront, which is, of course, the front yard of Chicago. That's where people do gather. Do you expect to open that up soon? I wouldn't say soon, but we are working on plans uh, to be able to open up the lakefront. Look, I get it. I love the lake. Um, There's nothing more calming to me than, you know, taking a drive on Lakeshore Drive, finding that little secret spot, which I won't reveal, um, that I, I go to just to watch the water and the waves. I mean, it's, it's cathartic, and I get it. But what I, I go back to what led me to close it, and we had done a lot of education around social gathering, the danger of clustering in two larger groups. We talked over and over and over again, and people just flat out ignored the guidance. And what I want to do is when we reopen the lakefront, and we will, we do it in a way that's smart and that, you know, unfortunately in many of these things, we have to play to the lowest common denominator. The person who's just not going to pay attention, what do we do to make sure that we can keep that person safe and, and minimize the risk that they're going to pose to other people? So I've gotten a lot of very interesting suggestions from residents. We're working with a lot of the lakefront aldermen um, on a plan. We'll get there, but we're just not ready yet. That's one of the things that worries me about the president telling people that things are getting better, that this is going to go away on its own, that we, we've got to reopen, because it sends a, a signal that isn't consonant with the situation we're facing. He also said, was uh, critical of Dr. Fauci for raising cautionary notes that schools should open in the fall. What about Chicago schools? Um, are you confident that school will, schools will be, public schools will be open and students attending them with their physical presence in the fall? Well, uh, you know, I'll play lawyer and say define confidence. Uh, <laughs> I, I, look, I can't look into a crystal ball and say where we're going to be. That's your old life. You can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. My, my, my law department tells me that every day. <laughs> I, I, look, my ambition is to get our kids back in school this fall. Um, we have done, I think, yeoman's work on remote learning. But the reality is we have a huge digital divide in various parts of our city that affects our young people's ability to connect up with the internet, Wi-Fi access, um, and, we, and we will end up spending um, you know, multiple tens of millions of dollars to address that issue. And we got to address it because it's a larger problem. But I, what I also know is I think about the little kids. When my daughter was a three-year-old going to uh, pre-K, um, the, the, the social emotional learning that happens in that environment when they're away from their parents for the first time and they're with other kids and, the, and they're with their teachers and they start to learn the love of learning, structure of school, being able to play safely. All of those things are critically important, particularly for our youngest kids. And that doesn't happen when you're seeing your teacher for the very first time ever on a digital screen. So for those kids, when I think about it, it's really important that we get them back in school. Now, again, we're not going to do it in a way that puts anybody at risk. We're not going to do it in a way that isn't consultative with the entire ecosystem of the school environment, the principals, the teachers, the aides, you know, the lunchroom uh, staff. All of those people are important for the lifeblood of a school, and we got to do it in a way that we keep them safe and we keep the children safe. But absolutely, I have an ambition that if, the, if we keep trending in the right direction, 
We want to get our kids back in school. And it may not be full-time 30 kids in a classroom. That's probably not smart. But we can do it in a lots of different ways. We can spread out the spaces because there's lots of different um, spaces that are available in schools where we can hold um, classes. They're going to be remote learning um, that's done, I think, at the city colleges level. Maybe we repurpose some of those spaces. I think the way in which we can think creatively about how to bring our children back with their teachers, there's no limit to that. And we've got to explore every opportunity because of how important it is for those youngest of children to find that connection with their beloved teachers. So ambition, but no guarantee, basically. We can't, I, there's no way, anybody who can guarantee what's going to happen in the fall um, is right. making it up. There's right. no guarantee right. that can be given. So um, you are a big sports fan. You've been a Bears ticket season holder for 20 years. Everybody wants to know if there's going to be sports in the foreseeable future and if that sports will involve actually fans, you and others sitting in their seats watching the games, or are they going to be consigned to watching it on TV until there's a vaccine or a significant treatment for this? Well, first, again, we've got to be guided by the data. Um, and the... Um, the sports league um, executives that I've talked to, of course, are thinking about how do they get um, their players back on the field for the obvious reasons. Um, their most valuable asset, of course, are the players. And they all, every single one of those professional sports teams has really strong, robust unions. So I have confidence that there will be a meeting of the minds about what makes sense. If I had to predict right now, again, looking into the, my non-existent crystal ball, um, I do think that sports will start. Um, there probably there could be some delay, but I don't think they're going to start with fans in the stadiums in the first instance. I just don't see that as a possibility. You, I ask you that question as the former uh, star point guard for Washington High School in Massillon, Ohio, and I wanted to talk to you. You mentioned I want to talk a little bit about your story, which is a, a remarkable story. You mentioned your mom, and I'm sure when you say you think of her, it's not just that she's 91 and vulnerable. She also spent a lot of her life working in nursing homes and uh, as a home health care worker and so on. She would have been on the front line uh, right now. She would have been one of those people who's more exposed than others because she, she was out there helping people. No, I, I, I think a lot about that as I talk to health care workers, as I talk to the unions who are concerned um, and also just the, the folks that run these facilities. Um, I know from my mom's experience, and I hope to, I hope to God it's uh, a million times better than it was when she was out there, they are on the front lines. They don't get um, the training that they should get, um, and they don't oftentimes get the kind of equipment to keep them safe. I think it's a different world now, and part of that is because uh, many of these workers are unionized, but we know that there are still other workers, mostly women of color, who are in the care community, who are taking care of seniors. You know, at the end of my mother's uh, work life, she took care of um, people who were sick and shut in, um, made them meals, bathed them, and just kept them company. Those workers, they're invisible to many people. And, and I worry a lot about them in particular. Now, we also know from the arc of this virus that congregate settings are places where this virus just spreads like wildfire. That's why our Department of Public Health has been very active and engaged with senior centers, um, nursing homes, and other settings like that, 
because it's so critically important that those places understand the data, have every support pos possible, and that they are getting testing of their workers and the uh, residents who live there. Absolutely. Uh, your, your folks, your father, Elijah, he was a, the, the, the son of a sharecropper. Both your parents grew up in the segregated South, moved north. He had hearing loss as a result of meningitis. And you t you've talked about that and how he had to scuffle to make a living and deal with his, his disabilities uh, and so on. T tell me about that and tell me about your, your dad. Um, my dad's been gone for 10 years and I miss him every day. I, uh, I have a picture of the two of us um, beside my bed that I look at at night and I, I look at it in the morning. He had a very hard life. Um, and in some ways, I think he never recovered um, from growing up in the South. Um, and then <clears throat> adding, you know, proverbial insult to injury, growing up, not really having an opportunity to live out his life's ambitions, getting sick so early on in his early 20s, losing his hearing. So being a black man with a high school education and then a profound disability um, just really shaped and confined um, his world. But um, my dad had a great sense of humor. Um, he loved life, um, but he had to work hard every single day. You know, I, I, I talk a lot about my mother because I spent a lot of time with my mother as a kid because my dad was working um, two and three jobs every day. And just to, you know, he worked a, his full-time job, and then he would come home and eat, and then he'd go and do uh, work at night. And then on the weekends, he was a barber. So he um, cut people's hair and, and shined shoes. That's, that's, you know, that's what my dad did. And Sundays were really the only day where I got to see my dad for the entirety of, of the day because his work life was six days a week. Um, but he, he's a very, very different person than my mom. In some ways, very different than me. I'm much, much more um, like her in terms of personality, but just a good, decent human being. And I think a lot about him every day. I see my father in the faces of, of men of color um, who are working their tails off to have some dignity. Sorry. Not at all. Not at all. Do you, um, how much did his struggle forge your determination um, to do what you've done with your own life? It, it, it definitely deeply influenced me. To see my father worrying every single day <clears throat> about basics, the utilities, his car payment, rent, and then um, we were fortunate enough to move into a house and have a mortgage. I never wanted to struggle in the way that he did. And I didn't know where my life would take me, but I knew that I wanted to have some economic freedom at least um, so that I could, I could help them, which I have done, but also be able to help myself and have some freedom. You know, when you have to worry every single day about staying in your house, about somebody coming and taking your car, um, about just being able to get through the day financially, that takes a toll on you. 
And, and that was the story of my parents' life for much of their married life together. You, you, you mentioned that they were able to, to buy a house. They moved to, yours was a segregated town like most towns were. Uh, in, in the day, small uh, industrial kind of town, uh, about 400 miles from Chicago in, in, in Ohio. But they moved to a predominantly white neighborhood, and they did that intentionally. Talk to me about that, and, and how did that impact on you? Because you must have been uh, very much in a minority in, in some of your school classes and in, in your neighborhood and so on. How did that shape your thinking and your life? I, I think that, um, look, the, the, the town was incredibly segregated. Um, and at the time that my parents were making a decision um, about where they could buy, um, they wanted to buy, well, we lived in the, this area for the entirety of my life. We moved probably into a house that was about four or five blocks away from our rental home. Um, but they wanted to, us to be able to stay um, close to the friends that we had known our entire growing up years and to be in the same um, school uh, system that we had known. So uh, the, my parents really sacrificed everything for us as children. And, and really, the way in which they lived their lives was about what was best for us. And so that really drove the decisions. And you're right, when I have a brother who's six years older than me, um, when he left my elementary school, for the entirety of the rest of the time that I was there, which was about five years, from first grade to sixth grade, I was literally the only black kid in my school. And in my town, it was black and white. Um, there were tiny, tiny, um, maybe two or three families that were Latinx. Um, so yeah, I grew up um, for most of my schooling until I got to high school um, as being either the only or a small handful of black students in an otherwise um, white um, school. And how did that feel? I mean, was there, did you feel the, as an outsider there or? I mean, yes, yes, yes and no, right? I grew up in the late 60s and early 70s. And, you know, while it was Ohio, not Alabama, um, you know, segregation was still an issue, you know, blatant on the table. Racial discrimination was still a thing. There were certain things I couldn't do, and I knew places I couldn't go because I was black that my classmates were going to. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, 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 my, I definitely struggled with uh, my identity as a black person for a long time growing up in a very white environment. I think the thing that um, was helpful to me is I was a good student. So I was always one of the best in my class, best in the school. That made a huge difference. And then um, when I was in seventh or eighth grade, uh, my mother got appointed to the local school board, and then she um, uh, ran for election. And then for the rest of my time in school, um, she was a member of the school board. So frankly, that helped um, a lot. But but when I got to high school, and then we were it was one high one public high school in my town, I started then seeing um, black kids, some of them who I knew from church, but a lot of whom I didn't know. And it was a struggle because I stood out like a sore thumb. I talk like I talk now. I didn't, as they said, talk black. Um, and there was a lot of you think you're better and, you know, a lot of the petty crap that happens in junior high and really in high school, I experienced a lot of that. 
But I had, I had my mother in my ear constantly, literally and, and but also figuratively telling me to push myself to do the best I could, not let people bring me down. Um, I mean, that was kind of a daily mantra in my household. But yeah, it was tough. It was absolutely tough. One of your siblings, your brother Brian, uh, took a, a different path and not a happy one. Uh, and has, I, I don't know what his status is uh, now, but spent a lot of time in the, in the criminal justice system. H- how did that impact on you? And it must have been terribly difficult for your parents. It was really hard. It was really hard on us as a family. I, I, I've told this story, but yeah, my, my, there, for some people, and my brother was definitely one of them, the street life is almost like a narcotic in and of itself. It is incredibly alluring. And my brother started kind of going in a different direction when he was a teenager. I can remember when he was probably 13, 14 years old, hanging out with a group of guys, um, some of whom you know, beat him to jail, um, some of whom died. Um, he had a friend who was killed in a robbery um, when he was a teenager. Um, but my, my brother was determined to, to um, really take a very different course. Um, and he ended up spending most of his adult life locked up. Um, the last was 17 years in federal prison. He got out now probably five or six years ago. He lives now in the same town that my mother um, lives in. But, you know, when you're a 60-something-year-old man and you've never really had a legitimate job in your life um, and you've spent your, the entirety of your growing up years on the inside, that does something to you. Do you are you in touch? Uh, kind of. We, we go through ebbs and flows. Um, you know, he came and he was here uh, for the inauguration. Um, and we've, our context has kind of slowly diminished over time. My brother, you know, he struggles with addiction still. Um, he, he's now 60-something years old. He's got some physical challenges. But not having any, any skill that's transferable, you know, he'd love to be wearing a suit every day and being in an office. That's just not realistic when um, you've been a guy on the streets for most of your life. And so the hustle is, is very, still very alluring to him. And now a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. Later in your life, uh, you became a a federal prosecutor, and you prosecuted gangbangers and drug leaders and leaders of of drug cartels. And how did, if at all, how, how did the experience of having seen your brother go through what he went through and do the things he did, did in any way impact on your view as a prosecutor? Yeah, I mean, it really did from the very beginning. When I was going through the, the final stages of my background check as a federal prosecutor, my brother was a fugitive. Um, and I had to sign a allegiance um, form, which I still um, makes me angry, I'll use that word, um, that I was going to be loyal to the Constitution and uphold the laws because my brother was a, a fugitive from justice. Um, yeah, and of course, like with seeing my, my father in the, men, in the eyes of um, really hardworking men of color, I of course thought about my brother when I, when I was prosecuting um, you know, Chicago Street 
gang members. Um, and it made me want to know their stories. It made me want to um, understand how they came to choose the life that they chose. And we had a, a range of um, interesting story conversations with you know, the young men that were um, both cooperators, but also the young men that were, we were arranging uh, plea deals for. Some of the men that I prosecuted here on the streets in Chicago ended up in a facility in Milan, Michigan, when my brother was there at the same time. So that made for uh, interesting conversations with him and um, with my, my parents. But look, when you, when you have a family member who is locked up, it has incredible impact, emotional impact. Um, you can't, my, my brother was still locked up when my dad died and he didn't get to say goodbye. And I, I know that haunts him. So there's nothing about the incarceration of human beings that is easy, that is simple, even the people that are, that are the most dangerous um, and that are psychopathic, and some of them are, that's somebody's kid. Yeah. That's, that's somebody's sibling. And, yeah. and you can never forget that. And I certainly never forgot that when I was a prosecutor. You went uh, to the University of Michigan uh, and then uh, you came here to the University of Chicago Law School. You arrived here just when Harold Washington was uh, completing his first term running for a very interesting, dynamic, kind of tumultuous time in Chicago politics. I'm wondering what your memories of, of Harold were. He was, you know, I having worked for him, it covered him, and then I worked for him. By the time you got here, I was working uh, for him. Maybe one of the most charismatic figures that I've ever known in, in politics, and I've worked with a lot of people. Uh, a remarkable guy. Yeah. So I remember him because when I was a junior in college, I took a semester and worked in, in Washington and attended American University. And I just by chance happened to be in a committee um, hearing as a young staffer um, when uh, the announcement came out that he had won. And he was in Washington. He's being congratulated by his colleagues. So I was fascinated from him, uh, of him from a distance. And then fast forward several years later, um, yeah, I, you know, I never knew him as a, as a mayor or as a human being, but yeah, he, he clearly was one of the most fascinating, charismatic um, elected officials I think this city and maybe this country um, has ever seen. And, and coming here in, um, in 86, when he was running for re-election and seeing the machine in all of its warts and glory, and then understanding um, the excitement that he ignited, particularly in black Chicago, and the kind of progressive lakefront um, uh, liberals, as they were called in those days. And yes. you know, I, I remember election day really, really well. And I left in the morning, and I planned to vote after I came um, home from class. And I had like 10 um, notes on my door saying, hey, you haven't voted. Hey, you haven't yeah. voted. Now, that was not my experience. And I thought, how the hell do these people know I didn't vote yet? Because um, <laughs> I didn't understand at that stage the, dy uh, the dynamics. Um, but it was, it was like nothing I'd ever seen. And then I remember, I remember really clearly hearing the news. That he had died. Yeah. So seven months or something after he got reelected. Yeah, and the days after... Um, the how things were so tumultuous. I walked through um, 
the city hall lobby to view his body. I was at UIC when that infamous uh, rally was held, and people were who were saying, no deals, no deals, had already cut their deal. To replace him, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, those were, uh, I, I remember them as, cle- as clearly as you. I was uh, very much involved in that. Well, the great thing about that moment, uh, the sad thing, it was unbelievably sad. It was remarkable, though, how the city that was so divided when he first got elected so embraced him uh, at the end. And when you walk through those lines at City Hall, there were people, white and black, from every neighborhood in this city who had come to embrace him as their leader. And, and uh, it was really a tremendous loss. I'm going to ask you something else about law school, and it relates to the conversation we were having earlier. I asked you about you know, how you adjusted to the racial identity issues when you were growing up. You also came out when you were in law school. And it made me wonder, when did you embrace your, your own identity, your, 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 your sexual identity, and how was that experience of deciding when it was time, and, and how was that received by your family? And Well, coming, coming out at the University of Chicago Law School in 86, 87 was not the place that I would have anticipated um, doing that. Um, you, know, you, you know the law school at that time. It was hyper-conservative. Yes. Um, there were very few people of color, but interestingly, um, there were actually a lot of gays in in the law school, um, and that really helped me. Um, the, there were, you know, I have still to this day incredible friendships among a lot of gay men and women that I met during that time, and it really helped me see that I um, could be my authentic self. I worried a lot about losing my parents. My parents were really, you know, going to church, you know, every Sunday, every Wednesday, and a couple other days in between, um, conservatives. I didn't know at, at the time, of course, I didn't know anybody gay that was grow- that when I was growing up. And of course, I, with the benefit of hindsight, I, I did. Um, and so I, was, I spent a lot of years worrying about losing my parents, but something clicked over time in law school where I just felt like I'm not going to be happy if I'm not who I am. And I, to my parents' credit, when I told them, um, they were, they couldn't have been more gracious. They couldn't have been more lovely. And my father um, really, I think, was, my mother didn't talk much about it because that's just what she doesn't do. When she doesn't want to talk about something, she just shuts it off and, you know, moves on. But my father was lovely and couldn't have been um, more generous and embracing and loving. You spent seven years in private practice. And then, as we mentioned earlier, you, you became a prosecutor. Why did you choose that direction? Well, I, I, ironically, particularly given my brother's circumstance, I had always kind of been drawn to law enforcement. You know, I'm a rules girl. Um, I believe in justice. And I had thought about the FBI when I was in law school, but both because I was gay and, and also at the time the FBI had a rule that um, you had to travel ever, uh, to a different, live in a different city for five, your first five years. And I didn't want to do that. So I just kind of put that ambition to the side. But I liked, I liked the work I was doing at the firm, which increasingly became um, internal investigations and criminal defense work. And I work with a number of federal prosecutors, former federal prosecutors who 
um, you know, suggested to me that if I was interested, I was not one of these, um, you know, law school people who had this ambition and my, my, my professional life was already charted out. So I kind of fell into uh, the opportunity, um, but it was the best thing that I could have ever done. Really taught me how to be a lawyer. Uh, it taught me the power of, of being a prosecutor. And by that, I mean, um, you know, you do, you do literally get to make decisions about people's liberty, who gets charged, what they get charged with, how tough you go or not. I mean, that is an awesome power that, that one can never underestimate. Um, and I, you know, I got some grief to be sure from my more liberal friends saying, why do you want to be the man, right? I, what I wanted to be was somebody who sat at that table because of the power and to bring my life experiences to those very nuanced discretionary decisions that every prosecutor holds in their hand. It's a little bit of a, a different talent set or uh, orientation than the office you have now. Uh, prosecutors are in many ways solitary figures. They are responsive to the law and to judges, but uh, as you say, make a lot of decisions on their own. And you're in a position now where you, are, you have to build consensus in order to get things done. Yes, you have to make decisions, but you can't make them all by yourself most of the time. Um, has that been an adjustment for you? Well, I would actually say that my experience as a prosecutor was, was very different than what you describe. First of all, it's an incredibly collegial place um, because um, you can't talk about what you do every day with the world. It's hard to have your spouse relate. Um, and, and I know this from um, having drug Amy to a lot of events where there are a bunch of former prosecutors, she, she, she learned pretty quickly to say, no, no, I'm good. You, you go on your own. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, is, it, is, it is kind of a, it is a, a unique collegial um, world. Um, and of course you have dis discretion, but you're talking through these issues with your colleagues, with your supervisor on a regular basis. And so I learned a lot about collegiality from that experience. And I hope that my style as mayor, both with my team, but also um, in embracing uh, members of the public is much more um, collegial because of that experience. And what I know is that, you know, I'm very decisive. Um, I, I can get to a decision pretty quickly, but the best decisions and the ones that are most valued are the ones where you bring people along on the journey from the very beginning. So, um, you know, I don't think that you do a plebiscite on every decision you can't. Um, you'll be paralyzed, particularly in a, in a time like this where literally every single day I'm making, you know, tens of, um, if not hundreds of decisions, micro decisions every day um, and big decisions every day. But, but being able to have a sense of the pulse of people whose lives are going to be affected by what you're doing, that's a good thing. It makes things slower but it's a better thing in the, at the end. I have to ask you, and this is a painful thing that you've spoken to, but you got rebuked at one point by a federal judge, Richard Posner, who actually was associated with the University of Chicago, because of your handling of one case. And that thing stuck with you for a while. I know you feel that that was unjust. It was fundamentally unjust. Um, you know, look, it's too complicated to, to explain here, yeah. but, you know, I was a low man on a tonal pole, um, involving an international extradition. As you might imagine, as a junior lawyer in the office, 
I didn't make those kind of decisions on my own. Um, I made them with my supervisor. But Posner, I think, frankly, got over his skis um, and wanted to hold the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, responsible. And there were some other, I think, dynamics going on between the Seventh Circuit and the office at the time. And I got the short end of the proverbial stick. Um, I, 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 I pride myself on my integrity. I, 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 I worry over, particularly when I was a lawyer, every word I wrote. When I was signing my name on a pleading, I wanted to make sure that it was something I could be proud of and that I could defend. And I never have ever, in 30 plus years of practice, departed from that. Um, obviously, the Seventh Circuit saw it in a different way. But the thing that gives me then and, and now heart is I had people from every side of the V, meaning uh, prosecutors, defendants, judges, and a, a whole host of people uh, from the bar um, in Chicago that stood up and say, I've worked with Lori Lightfoot. I know who she is. This is a person of integrity. Um, and, and luckily, Posner cited that in saying, well, the public rebuke is enough. But uh, you know, if, you, if you've dealt with Posner, you, uh, you know that uh, he's, he's undaunted by the facts many times. <laughs> Um, I quickly have to cover some very big things. Um, one is you prosecuted political corruption cases in the city. You prosecuted an alderman when you uh, were there at the U.S. Attorney's Office. You also prosecuted, as we mentioned, drug dealers, gangs. On, those, on the political corruption issue, why is Chicago—I get this question a lot. Why is Chicago so subject to corruption? Uh, why has it, it, has, has it been historically— so, and then the second one I get is why is it so subject to gang violence more so than other cities? Uh, you've had a now uh, several different looks at this, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Those are those are both great and and big complicated questions. Um, on the public corruption, I think part of it is just because we've tolerated it too long. You know, others. I don't think Chicago historically is any more corrupt than other places, New York, you know, Philadelphia, uh, LA. But the tolerance for it in those other places became less and less over time. In, in, in my experience in 30 plus years of living in the city, the tolerance for it is still really great. If you, I, I'm probably, you probably didn't read the, uh, uh, the indictment of Ed Burke, but I did. Ed Burke, uh, the, the senior alderman in the city council, longtime power in the city, in the Democratic organization. Uh, go ahead. There's a lot of fascinating things about, about the indictment, but to me, one of the most telling, and I think responds to your question, is there's a, some dude from uh, the, you know, the, the buildings department that gets whistled to Ed Burke's ward office. He stays there for five or 10 minutes, clearly got a set of instructions, and then dutifully went and, on some trumped-up basis, shut down a building site because, from the Ed Burke's perspective, the guy hadn't come across with the money. He hadn't um, hired him to do the legal work. And, and so while this person probably didn't know there was a criminal conspiracy going on, the obedience to this power and doing something that didn't comport at all with the building code or what his actual true job was, 
but the willingness to be a party to it because a powerful alderman and his staff had commanded it. We have just tolerated corruption way too long. And, you know, gang violence is really complicated, but it, it, in short strokes, it, it comes down, into, in my mind, to poverty. It's the absence of. It's the absence of jobs, investments, money, good quality education. You know, and, you know, we're both have experience with U of C. What do they teach us? People are rational economic actors. When you have nothing, and then there's this opportunity for something, and when drug dealing becomes the um, only, only form of economic activity that can get you money to take care of your basic needs, so our goal has to be, obviously, to lock up violent people and make the community safe, but it has to be grounded in a strategy of supplanting that form of the economy with another that's legitimate and gives people a pipeline for a lifetime. Without question. I, I, I think uh, you know, that does not, I agree with that completely. It doesn't completely explain why gangs have flourished in Chicago in such great numbers in a way that they haven't in other cities. But that's a, we could probably do a whole hour uh, on that, I, I before I leave you, um, I have to ask you about policing, and uh, because you were chairman of the Chicago Police Board, you were the chair of the Policy Accountability Task Force after Laquan McDonald uh, was uh, killed here in Chicago, a national, uh, a nationally known uh, case. Now you're the mayor of the city, and the police force works for you, and you've been a prosecutor. And I guess my question to you is. How do you find that balance? Police officers are working vigorously to protect the safety of citizens, um, and uh, but there's a relationship between citizens and the community, and rights are respected, and you don't have those kinds of uh, incidents. It strikes me as a terribly difficult balance, because in both cases, it's often the same community that gets victimized, either victimized by crime or victimized by overzealous uh, policing. It's not easy, obviously, and you have to, you have to really set um, the right vision for what policing has to be in the city. Like many things in public life, if you don't have the community on your side, you will never be successful. And pol effective policing depends upon the legitimacy of the police in the eyes of the community that they are sworn to protect. And understanding that kind of basic fact you, you work everything else around that, meaning you've got you've to bring officers into communities and let them see the nuance and not just the crime statistics. You've got to bring the people into the academy so that they see officers in a very different light. You've got to put them in circumstances where they interact as human beings, not the cops in the community. Um, those are hard things to do, but if you don't do those things and you don't do them consistently forever, you're never going to bridge that divide. And then inside of the police department itself, man oh man, it is a complicated, tough organization. Cultural mores run deep. Um, and it is a constant struggle. It's a battle. And you've got to have a very strong leader at the top. You have a new police chief now. Yeah, and you make, you've got to make sure you empower that leader, but I'm also um, hands-on. You know, as I say to them all the time, 
I don't have time or inclination to be the mayor just of the police department, but I'm going to be hands-on and I'm going to be a presence until I feel like we are moved to a different chapter in the history of this police department and we are just not there yet. You have a, a new union leader there who uh, is a contentious character, not necessarily a Lightfoot supporter. <laughs> I'd say exactly the opposite of that. Yeah. I mean, how is that going to work? You know, look, um, I, had, I, I don't know him, but I've had a lot of exposure to him. Um, he used to come to police board meetings when I was a police board president, sit in the front row, um, and everything about his demeanor was um, hateful, I mean, to just be blunt. And he likes being provocative. He likes being controversial. He loves the media. Um, but I also know that he is now the leader of the largest police union in my city, and I have to figure out how we can forge some kind of working relationship if it's possible. We've had some preliminary um, conversations. I'm, I'm expecting that we will be getting together um, relatively soon. I intend to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I'm not going to cut and paste my values to try to accommodate somebody whose values are very different than my own. Police officers are important. We need to support them, and I'm going to continue to do that no matter who their leader is. But I hope that we can reach some common ground uh, for the benefit of their, his members, but also for the benefit of the department in the city. Mayor, I so appreciate your time. It's always good to talk with you. There's, there's probably hours and hours more that I could ask you about and want to ask you about. Maybe we'll have a chance to do that again. But right now, you have a pandemic to deal with and a, a hundred other pressing issues. So uh, I, I just very much... Uh, I very much appreciate your time. Thank you. And thanks for the, the viewers that hung in with us. <laughs> Good luck. Talk to you down the line. Okay. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.